Well, this morning we're going to be starting a new series in the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. We'll really be spending most of our time in the book of Acts, however, just as background information and just an introduction to Paul's ministry at the church of Thessalonica. Uh, the church at uh, Thessalonica, as we will see, are living in the midst of persecution and tribulation. And Paul's words, his two letters to the church at Thessalonica, uh, gives them wisdom and grace to live in a world that uh, is abusive to the Christian faith and how they should bear up what they should be about and how they can live for the glory of Christ in the midst of that kind of a context. I think that's going to be very applicable to us in our own day and age. And I think the, uh, the, the two books of First and Second Thessalonians uh, hopefully will be an encouragement to our faith and give us some wisdom and guidance in how to exalt Christ and live for Christ in the midst of a culture that is becoming increasingly anti-Christian. So before we actually dive into 1 Thessalonians, uh, I want us to kind of go back and uh, do some review just to kind of set the context for our study of the book. Uh, Thessalonians, or Thessalonica, was actually founded in the year 315 B.C. by a a man by the name of Cassander, And he was uh, an officer under Alexander the Great. He actually married Alexander the Great's sister, whose name was Thessalonica. So he named the city after Alexander the Great's sister. It was uh, situated on a very important harbor, very well situated for commerce and trade, so that the city uh, enjoyed great prosperity. And uh, if you look at uh, the, uh, the map, it sat very strategically on uh, some of the major roads in the Roman Empire, the uh, Via Ignatia, uh, which uh, the Romans built to transport their military across this new area that they had conquered, But there's a lot of important roads that run through Thessalonica. So it had great prosperity. Around 146 B.C., it became the capital of the entire Roman province of Macedonia. And it consolidated their control over this area. And uh, and again, continued to, to prosper. One of the most important historical facts about this city is in 42 B.C., the leaders of Thessalonica sided with Anthony and Octavian Caesar against Marcus Brutus in a civil war that was going on in Rome. And Anthony and Octavian Caesar, later to become known as Augustus, Caesar Augustus, won that battle. So because Thessalonica had sided with them, they were granted the status of being a free city as a reward for siding with those with that side, with Anthony and uh, Octavian Caesar. So they became a free city. And what that meant was 
that they were given special perks and blessings that other cities did not have. To be a free city meant that they could establish their own home rule, and they normally had five or six politarchs, as they called them, or magistrates, that they could choose themselves to rule their city. So they had that, that great freedom. Uh, self-government and internal affairs, that was a part of the blessing of being a free city. Uh, they also could mint their own imperial coins. They were granted freedom from some of the burdensome Roman taxes. That was a huge blessing. And also freedom from military occupation. So the Romans wouldn't send their troops and, and, and soldiers there to, to, to be uh, kept and housed and, and, uh, and uh, just to remain there indefinitely for one reason or another. They were free from that as well. They did not have to become a Roman colony, which meant they were free from having those Roman troops based within their own city. So these are some of the highest honors uh, given by Rome in, the, uh, in this day and age. So Thessalonica also housed the governor's administrative and judicial offices, uh, which brought a lot of business and commerce to the city. So economically, they were very blessed. Most of the citizens of Thessalonica were Greek, though there were some Romans, and we know that there was a, a good-sized uh, uh, Jewish synagogue there. So it definitely had a mixed population. Um, they also had a lot of influence from pagan religions, as we'll see in just a moment. So at the time that Paul came to Thessalonica, it was very much a cosmopolitan-type city with a strong Greek influence. Now, the religious character of Thessalonica is very important to understand because in the ancient world, religion and politics were always very closely intertwined. So the government utilized religion and the religion utilized government. And so you have this very much connected at this time where the government and and religion were very much in bed together. Now, the religious side of this, and it, by the way, it's just like it is today. And I'll make some more comments about that here in a little bit. But the reason why these, these are always really the case where religion and government are always kind of intertwined is that government makes laws, right? Laws are determined by values, and religion determines values. So you see how that connects. When a religion dominates a culture, their values will be imparted. Those values ultimately will be turned into law by the government. So every government that makes laws are making laws based upon somebody's values. They're either godly values or ungodly values. But the religious influence is always there in one way or another. And that was true back then, and it's true very much today. Religions prop up and legitimize the power structures of the day. So some of the religions that were going on in Thessalonica in the first century when Paul visited there, 
included the cult of the goddess Roma from Rome. So it was a goddess that kind of represented the, the city of Rome. And, and obviously, uh, from the magistrate's perspective, you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you. So since Rome gave them all these perks to be a free city, they definitely want to keep Rome in their back pocket. They want to stay on friendly terms. So one of the, the popular cults in Thessalonica was a cult to the goddess Roma. There was also religious influence from Judaism, but a lot of different pagan religious cults existed there with their own temples and their own priests. For example, there was a temple to Aphrodite, uh, Demeter, Zeus, Artemis, Apollo, Isis, Serapis. Those are two Egyptian gods, goddesses. And Dionysius. And again, they had their own priesthood. They had their own followers. And all these different gods would bless your crops. They would, they would bless you physically. They would keep you safe when you traveled on the sea. So they had all these gods. So very, very much a, a kind of a, a, a molding pot for all these different religions. They all had an influence. But also one of the, the dominant religious views was an imperial cult. And this is where they actually would worship Caesar. The Caesar cult had its own temple there in Thessalonica. Uh, it began with uh, uh, the worship of Julius Caesar. And they would, have, they would mint their own coins and they would have Julius Caesar on one side with an attribute of, of him basically being God. And on the back side, they would have the face of his adopted son, Augustus, with the reference to the Son of God, or the Son of the Deified. And so they, this was very important. They wanted to stay in good standing with Rome. So they very much pushed this imperial cult. Uh, Caesar was their king. Caesar was their lord. And again, they had their own temple, their own priests, their own festival days. And all this was designed to cement Thessalonica's good standing with Rome. So it, uh, it became kind of a statement of faith that uh, God had empowered the emperor. And, and later on in history, that would become known as the divine right of kings. So the king would claim that he got his authority directly from God. And that's why we fought a revolutionary war in our country because God gives the, the power and authority to the people who then choose and vote in their governors. So it's an upside down kind of a thing. But back then, uh, again, God gave all the authority and right to the king. And, and in this sense, the king was actually worshipped, Caesar was worshipped as being God himself. So you can imagine any attack on the imperial cult threatened the social, political order of the city. So it was very clearly dangerous for a missionary like Paul and Silas and Timothy to come into the city and preach a different king with a different set of values. And this is why they, they always consistently got in trouble because you're pushing against the government. You're pushing against the politically correct religion that has joined hands with the government 
And now you're bringing in a different message that is not politically correct. And that's why you find that Paul is just continually being run out of town or being beaten severely or whatever it is because government and religion always work hand in hand. Again, it's happening in our country as well. So let's kind of do a bit of, a, of an overview of uh, the book of Acts to get us to where Paul ends up in uh, Thessalonica. So if you want to turn back to the book of Acts, and we'll look at um, briefly at chapter 16 and 17. I'm just going to survey uh, the, uh, the travel of the Apostle Paul. This is in his uh, second missionary journey. So he's, he's uh, retracing the steps of his first missionary journey there in the Galatia region. And then after he visits those churches and strengthens them and ministers to them, then he heads west. It's interesting, he was probably wanting to go to Ephesus. Okay? Ephesus is kind of over there where the, the no is on the bottom. It's, it's out there close to the coast and, uh, of Asia Minor. But the Spirit of God said, no, don't go that way. So God blocked him from going into Asia. Well, you're the Apostle Paul. You have a heart to preach the Gospel. You want to build churches. So you say, well, okay, if God has closed the door going south, maybe He wants us to go north into Bithynia. And the Spirit of God clearly said no. He shut that door. Closed that door. So now what do you do? Well, you just keep going west. And you go west until you come to Troas. And you're at the end of the road. So you, haven't, you don't know what to do. So you end up at Troas. God has said no. Block, close the door going south. Close the door going, going north. So you've gone all the way west as far as you can go. And now you're at the sea. So now what do you do? Well, God gives Paul in a vision the Macedonian call. And He calls him to come to Macedonia. So they get on a ship and they sail across the Aegean Sea. And I'm sorry if you can't see it, but they come to Philippi up uh, right under the letter E and D in Macedonia. So they end up in Philippi. This is Acts 16 verses 11 through 40. Uh, Philippi was a Roman colony. No synagogue there. Uh, a less important city than Thessalonica. But Paul goes to a women's prayer meeting by the river and he preaches and God opens Lydia's heart sovereignly and she becomes a believer in Christ. Uh, while they're ministering in the Agora, the marketplace, Paul casts out a demon from a slave girl that was prophesying, kind of bringing great money into the hands of her masters. She was kind of a female cash cow for them. Kind of like a religious prostitute in some ways, if you can kind of envision that. But he cast her out. He cast out the demon from her. And obviously, her masters become irate. Their business just went under. So basically what they start doing is they arrest, they, they, they go and have the magistrates arrest Paul and Silas. They get beaten with blows. 
many blows, thrown in an inner prison. Their feet are placed in stocks because they were preaching the Gospel. It ran up against these men. He attacked the religion. This demon possession emphasis from this girl. The magistrate sided with them, punished them, threw them in prison. And during the middle of the night, Paul and Silas are singing hymns of praise to God. A great earthquake happens. A jailer gets saved. As you know the story well, the next morning the magistrates send down word to release Paul and Silas. And, and Paul says, no, they, they punished us. We're Roman citizens. So they utilize the Roman citizenship rights. And they wronged us. Without a trial, they had us beaten. That's illegal. So he said, let, them, let the magistrates come down. We'll speak to them. So they came down and obviously the magistrates are scared to death. They realize uh, they have violated Roman law. But they begged Paul and Silas and Timothy to leave the city. So basically they were run out of the town after being severely beaten. So now they come in Acts chapter 17 to Thessalonica. So they're traveling across the, uh, the Ignatian Way. And Thessalonica is about 100 miles west of Philippi. The distance from here to Tulsa or from Oklahoma City to Ardmore. About 100 miles. That's the distance to Thessalonica. And again, Thessalonica was the largest and most important city in Macedonia. So if you read and look in Acts 17 verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. According to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks, number of the leading women. So he shows up there. He starts in the synagogue, which was his pattern. He's there for three Sabbaths. He probably was there a little longer, but he was, he was in three Sabbaths in the synagogue, reasoning from the Scriptures, preaching the Gospel, trying to persuade them that their Messiah had come as Jesus Christ. God blessed His ministry in an amazing way. We find in verse 4 that some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. So these would be some of the Jews within that synagogue got saved. Along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks, these would be the Greeks that uh, basically came out of the paganism or they got disillusioned with all the pagan religions and immorality that they fostered. And they were, they were drawn to the monotheism of Judaism, that they worshipped only one God, not all these gazillions of other gods. And they were also drawn to the higher moral standard that the Jews held to. So, so a good number of the Greeks were drawn to Judaism. They, they wouldn't become full-fledged Jews. They didn't get circumcised and some of that the, the stuff, cultural stuff they didn't participate in. But they were drawn, so they were called God-fearers. And a large number of God-fearing Greeks also believed the Gospel with a number of leading women. These would be maybe businesswomen like Lydia back in Philippi uh, or wives of upperclassmen that um, 
have their own spheres of influence. And when we get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he's going to say many of you came out of paganism to worship the living God. So there's also other people just within the city that heard the gospel and repented and came to faith in Christ. So, so in Philippi, there's a relatively small harvest. In Thessalonica, it was a much larger uh, harvest, mostly made up of Gentiles. And most of them were relatively poor, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. But the church not only started to grow, but they took on the mantle of evangelism. And after Paul and Silas were run out of Thessalonica, they began to preach the gospel. They began to go out into surrounding areas around Thessalonica and preach the gospel. So it was a very vibrant, spiritually alive, evangelistic church. Uh, But whenever you uh, begin to preach the gospel, uh, you make enemies. You're going to make religious enemies. You're going to make government enemies. And that began to happen in Thessalonica. So we read down in verse 5, but the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason. Jason was probably one of the Jewish believers and Paul and Silas and Timothy probably were staying in his home. It's an educated guess. And they were seeking to bring him out to the people. That'd be Jason. Because Paul and Silas weren't there. Verse 6. But when they did not find them, Paul and Silas, Timothy, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men have upset the world, have come here also. And Jason, having welcomed them, And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. So basically you have the Jews now rejecting this idea of a crucified, resurrected Messiah. That was not their view of the Messiah. He certainly wouldn't die. He wouldn't be crucified. So they rejected the Gospel But they went and orchestrated a violent mob, we read in verse 5. This violent mob was made of wicked men taken from the marketplace. And I think the mob was being paid off to be there as many mobs (laughs) kind of are. And I understand probably what they were yelling was Jewish lives matter. So this is kind of the rent mob This is kind of like the Antifa of today. And uh, so they were accusing Paul and Silas and them for basically upsetting the world. And they're also claiming that there's another King Jesus. Now already you know that that's not going to go over well with the government or with their partners in crime religion. Because to say there's another king, that threatens the deity and the rule of Caesar. So now you're on thin ice. But that's the Gospel, right? That's what we preach. That's what we say. Uh, Because if we preach the Gospel, people need to believe in the 
Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And they were proclaiming that. And this mob was calling them to task. So that message of the Gospel was very toxic to the magistrates. Because if, if, if you have these rabble-rousers, Paul and Silas, preaching there's another king, and that word gets back to Rome, and Caesar hears that there's, an, there's a riot going on in Thessalonica where they're, where they're claiming there's another king besides Caesar, then Caesar may take away our privileges as a free city. I mean, there was, this was very risky. It was, it was threatening a lot of their blessings that they had from Rome. So it was very toxic. They didn't want to uh, be accused of the charge of treason. So they had to deal with it. So they went to find Paul and Silas. They couldn't find them. So they found Jason. And they dragged Jason out. And at least the magistrates didn't beat him. If they had found Paul and Silas, they very well may have beaten, it, beaten them. We don't know. They didn't find them. But they took Jason out. And at least the, uh, the magistrates, the politarchs as they were called, uh, required from Jason a pledge. And, uh, and at that point, uh, when they got a pledge from uh, Jason, then in effect, they released him. What that, what that pledge was, if you can read about in verse 9, it says, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them, Jason and the, and the brethren that they had arrested. The pledge probably, it may not have been monetary, like posting bail, it may have been a pledge that they would uh, quell the commotion that Paul and Silas and Timothy were creating. So the ultimate response was in verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So now the Gospel was threatening the um, stability of the community. It was not only attacking the religious structure, but the civil government structure. And for the safety of the church, Paul and Silas realized they needed to go. They needed to move on. So they went down to Berea. The, the interesting parallel is that today we see that government and religion have kind of joined hands to persecute uh, biblical values and, and growingly so even the church in our own country. The religion, religion and government are always intertwined because of the nature of you got to have laws. Laws are based on values. The prevailing religion of the day determines the values. So today what's going on in America because the same kind of relationship between government and religion is going on. Our country was founded basically with a, a Christian biblical worldview. But we've long since lost that at, at large in our country. Uh, today, it would seem to me that the religion in favor that is in cahoots with our government is the religion of wokeism. Wokeism is basically being forcibly imposed on the entire American populace 
by virtually every major societal institution from government to media to big tech, big business, academia from preschool to grad school. And thank you, Lori, for running for the the school board here in uh, Putnam City. To the entertainment industry and even to sports. So the religion of wokeism, you say, well, wokeism isn't a religion. Well, remember the federal government called secular humanism a religion. And wokeism is very similar to it. But wokeism within our own culture uh, supposedly promotes justice and equality. And the church, we should be for biblical justice, absolutely. If there's injustice going on, we should oppose it. But wokeism promotes justice and equality for all the victims from the heterosexual white males Christians. Is basically, we're the enemy, by and large. So wokeism promotes equal rights for the LGBT community, including the child grooming trans school teachers. It promotes equality for drag queens, those who want to mutilate our children by convincing them that they are of the opposite gender that they were born with. And every other marginalized group from homeless people to illegal aliens are now the victims of the white men, heterosexual Christians. And so we need to elevate them and suppress the white men, heterosexual Christians. Wokeism recently within our own country activated the Antifa and the BLM race riots in the summer of 2020 that burned down cities or parts of cities, tore down historic monuments throughout our country, including Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln, insisted on multi-million dollar reparation payments to minorities, appointing men who claim to be women to some of the highest levels of government office within our own country. Disney producers boasted that they have secretly, quote, they are secretly injecting queerness into children's programming. The military is imposing diversity training and transgender pronoun use within the military, putting men who claim to be women in women's prisons and in women's sports. This is all wokeism. This is the prevailing religion that has now commandeered our government so that our government and every other social institution is promoting these religious values. It's very much like what was going on in the first century where government and religion join hands and ultimately they're going to persecute biblical values in Christians. And that's why I think First and Second Thessalonians have a lot of encouragement and wisdom uh, for us as we uh, work our way through it. So the Gospel today comes and says to our culture, the problem today is not white supremacists. The problem today is not white men who are heterosexual and Christians. The problem is humans. It's because we're all sinners. That's the problem. Not just one category of humanity, but all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the problem. 
Now, under the wokeism religion, how do you get saved? You promote wokeism. You side with it. You agree with it. And you promote it. And now you're on the good side. Now you've been redeemed socially because you're promoting the values of wokeism. But that's not the Gospel, is it? The Gospel is we've all sinned. Every single one of us. White men that are heterosexual and, and we're sinners. We, we agree that. There's no doubt about that. A lot of ungodliness has been committed by the church. I mean, we agree with that. A lot of injustice throughout our history. We understand that. But we're all sinners. And the Savior is not becoming woke. The Savior is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. So the Gospel comes and says, the problem is not this one category of humans. It's all humans. It's, it's, a, it's a disease that is worldwide. And we come and we preach that we are sinners, but Jesus Christ is the Savior. And that anyone who repents of their sins can be totally forgiven of all of their other sins. And once you come to faith in Christ, there's a new standard of living. There's a new morality that we live by. We don't live by the, the woke values. We live by Christianity. And by the way, there's a new King. And it's Jesus Christ. He's our Lord. He's our Master. He's the King. And that Gospel, that message does not sit well with the intertwining of government and wokeism today. And that's why you're seeing not only primarily it's our values are being trampled underfoot uh, by all the things that are going on, but the church itself, I think, we're in the crosshairs. It's really not easy to be a Christian today in a pagan culture, which we have become. It wasn't easy for Paul and Silas. They got run out of town. They got beaten up because their gospel was contrary to the politically correct religion and understanding of government of their day. So it's not easy to be a Christian in a pagan culture. Christianity has always clashed with pagan state religions. And this clash has unleashed persecution on the church. So the Gospel is a threat to the politically correct religion of wokeism and government sovereignty. It's a threat to it. So part of what Paul is going to encourage the church to do is to stand firm in the Gospel. Don't cave in and embrace the wokeism that's out there. That's rooted in paganism. But stand firm for Jesus Christ. Preach the Gospel. Stand for the Gospel. And don't be intimidated even though you're persecuted because of your faith in Jesus Christ. That's part of what he's going to encourage them to do. Well, because Paul and Silas and Timothy were kind of run out of Thessalonica, they wanted to stay longer. They were, they were only there in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. That's like three weeks. Plus, you can add another week or two, maybe a little bit longer. But they had to flee because they were run out of town now. And yet, Paul's heart was burdened because... He was uh, not able to really 
complete the training that he wanted to do and to teach them to try to get this young church established in the faith. He didn't have time. He got ran out. So his heart is very burdened for them. So once they get run out of Thessalonica, they go to Berea. They stay there for a little while. The Jews from Thessalonica, they're like hound dogs. They follow them down to Berea. They stir up people there to run them out of Berea. And now Paul basically has to kind of flee from his life. So they put him on a ship and he sails down to Athens. So from Athens, he's Timothy and Silas are left behind in Berea for a little while. They eventually come down and meet up with Paul in Athens. He sends them back. He sends Timothy to go to Thessalonica. Silas probably goes to Philippi. So Paul's basically by himself in Athens. He ministers in Athens. It's kind of a, a dry hole there. Not much response there. So he moves on to Corinth. And he stays in Corinth. Timothy and Silas eventually meet up with him in Corinth. And Paul is so concerned, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica because he's concerned. They're, they're, they're baby Christians. He hasn't had the time to really teach them everything he wants them to know. So he sent Timothy up there to check on them, to try to encourage their faith since he can't go back there right then. So Timothy comes to Corinth, meets up with Paul, gives him a very encouraging word that the that the church at Thessalonica, man, they're... They're thriving. They're being persecuted by the government, by the religions. But they're hanging in there. They're hanging tough. They're, they're sharing their faith. And in response to that good news, Paul is going to write 1 Thessalonians. And then soon after that, he'll write 2 Thessalonians while he's still in Corinth. So what is he going to emphasize in those letters? Well, one of the things he's going to emphasize is thanksgiving to God for electing them and saving them. So he emphasizes that in verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Knowing brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. So he's celebrating God's electing grace. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. He's thanking God for saving them and establishing such a vibrant church. So that's one of the things he's going to do and communicate in the two letters. He's also going to emphasize uh, the coming of, of the Lord. Basically, every chapter in uh, first and second, first, first Thessalonians, every chapter ends with a reference to the second coming. And second Thessalonians abounds with eschatological information. So there's going to be a lot of that because he didn't have time to teach them eschatology. So that will be an emphasis in these two letters. One of the things he'll emphasize is comfort for the future resurrection concerning those believers who have died before Christ has returned. He'll talk about the timing of the rapture, meeting of the Lord in the air, relief at the second coming, our gathering to Him at the second coming, and then the glory of the resurrection in 2 Thessalonians. So that'll be uh, some of the emphasis in the two letters. He'll also emphasize just practical exhortations to godliness and sanctification. They need to live to please God. 
So in other words, even though they're going to be persecuted, they're going through persecution, live for God. Don't just live for yourself. Live for God. Live for Christ. Stand firm for the Gospel. Abstain from sexual immorality. Don't be drawn back into the pagan religions that abound in Thessalonica. Abstain from that. Love the brethren and minister to one another. In 2 Thessalonians, his emphasis will be stand firm. Hold to the traditions. The truth that I gave you, hold firmly to those truths. Pray for the advance of the Gospel. Keep away from and admonish the unruly. And he reminds them that sanctification is ultimately a work of Almighty God. So those are going to be some of the emphases along with just refuting some of the criticisms that he receives. Uh, the Jews and the, the enemies of, of Paul there will make a lot to do probably about him abandoning the church. That he was only there for a short time and then life got tough. Persecution started coming. So they, so they fled. Paul and Silas, they're cowards. They're chickens. They're like these traveling philosophers that go around just peddling their philosophy and all they want is your money. And once they get it, then they're gone. And Paul's going to totally dismantle those criticisms. And uh, so it'll be interesting as we look at that. <clears throat> well, in conclusion, the, the, the planting of the church in Thessalonica is a, is a good example of just the sovereignty of God in guiding Paul's ministry. And I want to kind of close with this, just as we uh, uh, have looked at this introductory lesson on the church and kind of how it was founded, what's going on in the church when Paul was there, an overview of the letters. But Paul would not have ended up in Macedonia. That was not his plan when he started out on his second missionary journey. What he was wanting to do is to go to Ephesus. That was kind of the, the gem in Asia, is Ephesus. I mean, that was the, the pearl. He wanted to get there and establish a church there. But God said no. And then by default, he thought, well, I want to stay in Asia Minor, the general area of modern day Turkey, so I'll go north. And again, the Spirit of God said no. And so it wasn't until he was at Troas that he received the Macedonian call. And I think what, I, what we see in that, of course, is the sovereignty of God to guide and direct His people. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord does what? Directs His steps. And that's true of you, as well of, as the Apostle Paul. God is guiding your life, your steps. You may have great plans in your life or a direction to go in your life, but God may shut that door closed. He may slam it. And then you try to go another direction. God may shut that door. And now you're just saying, oh Lord, what do I do? I've planned my way and now I'm at a dead end. What do I do? You can trust that God is guiding your steps. Another great proverb is that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. If that's true of the king's heart, God is sovereign and turns it. It's also true of the magistrate's hearts. 
So the magistrates that brought the persecution on Paul was, was God's means of moving Paul forward in his missionary journey. He got run out of a town. He's got to go to the next one. The hearts of those magistrates are like streams of water in the hands of the Lord. So it's all orchestrated by God. And we can draw comfort for that because your trials and your dead ends and your roadblocks and your life are governed by the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, and that we can trust in, in God's guidance in our lives. We may not end up where we wanted, where we thought we would, where we, want, where we desired to be, but God's hand is upon you and I believe the Scriptures would say that God is guiding you in your life just as He's guiding Paul in His. Christ is still guiding us. He's still directing His people today. His hand is on you even though it's invisible and you don't feel Him turning you this way or that way. The Lord is guiding your life. Christ is the shepherd of His sheep. He's leading us. He is guiding us just like He was the Apostle Paul in His ministry. I love John 10 that talks about the Lord Jesus as our shepherd. Such a beautiful passage. And it says that when He puts forth all of His own, He goes ahead of them and the sheep follow Him because they know His voice. You see, Christ is always guiding His sheep. And if you by faith in Jesus Christ have, have trusted the Lord to forgive you of your sins and you're one of His sheep and He is your shepherd and He is guiding you through your life just like He did with the Apostle Paul. And what an encouraging, comforting thought to realize that and to trust God to know that even the trials and afflictions that come our way, our shepherd is guiding us through them. For yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they protect me. So your shepherd is always guiding you. He's always with you. He's directing you. Because He has good to bless your life with. In the Old Testament, God guided His people through the wilderness with the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And now it's the Holy Spirit who indwells us, that guides us. It's the Spirit of Christ. His heart is in tune with the heart of Christ and He's guiding us through our life. Psalm 48 verse 14 says, For such is God, our God forever and ever, He will guide us until death. And that's what we see in the Apostle Paul's life. That's God was guiding him in his ministry, moving him forward from one city to another. And in the same way, God is guiding us as well. So I think we can be encouraged just by seeing that the church of Thessalonica was established because of God's will. God wanted Paul to cross over from Troas into Macedonia, a place he never was envisioning that he would go, and yet God used him mightily to accomplish a great work to build churches throughout uh, Greece, modern-day Greece. And uh, it's all to the glory of Christ. So just be comforted that God, the same God, is guiding your life as well. Well, that's kind of some opening thoughts to uh, the study of 
First and Second Thessalonians. So next week, Lord willing, we'll jump into First Thessalonians chapter one. So with that, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do uh, thank you, Lord, that we see in your providence the hand of God guiding and directing Paul and his co-workers and laborers in a ministry that was very uh, toxic to the prevailing culture of his day. The other religions hated it. The government didn't like it. It threatened uh, Caesar's rule on his throne. And so the gospel is very antithetical to pagan culture as it is today. So it was back then. But Lord, we, we thank you for establishing this church by your grace. And we pray for the power of your spirit that we might stand firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whatever persecution may or may not develop within our country, there's already some. Our values are certainly being trampled upon left and right. We pray that we would uh, be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. That even though the wokeism of the religion that dominates our culture, that we would not be intimidated by it. That we would not hide our light under the bushel basket or under the bed. But that, Lord, we would in the love and gentleness and graciousness of Jesus Christ stand firm for the Gospel. That we would call out to all men that they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, whether a homosexual or, or a liar or a thief or whatever it may be. We have all sinned against God. And there is only one hope to be delivered from the judgment day that's coming the wrath of God that will be poured out upon all sin, and that is to flee to Jesus Christ by faith alone. To place our trust completely and totally in Him. For He alone died for sinners and bore our sin and bore the wrath of God that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. So Lord, as we embark on this journey of studying through these two letters of the Apostle Paul, May the Spirit of God encourage our faith, build our church for the glory of Your name. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.